Amen. So, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. <clears throat> Here, Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he had begun with... Uh, that whole premise of each of us has a purpose. Each of us has a, uh, a use uh, to the body of Christ. And, and that, you know, there is a mentality amongst certain people that uh, they don't have a usefulness. And, and that kind of goes both ways. Some people feel that way about themselves. Like I have no purpose in the body. Other people feel that way about other people. That they think that they're the only one that has a usefulness and other people don't have a usefulness. We're all interconnected. And we're all very dependent upon one another. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any kind of superiority or inferiority in, in the Bible. You know, we have, uh, you know, a thought in the uh you know, non-Christian science world that, uh, you know, we've evolved. And in that, uh, there is a, a core premise that uh, there are useless things in our body. That, uh, you know, you have something that isn't useful, but it, it'll eventually develop and become something useful. You know, the, the uh, I remember years ago reading about the, the theory that, um, you know, certain organisms develop spots, uh, you know, on their forehead, which those spots continued to be affected by their environment until they eventually became eyeballs, you know, so that this creature could see, you know, something useless becoming useful. You know, the tailbone, I remember reading when I was very young, scientists, you know, saying that that was the remnants of when we were you know, apes, and, and and that the the tail had you know fallen off or or shrunk and you know become smaller and smaller and less and less vertebrae until eventually we have you know what we have today. You listen and read certain published articles, and they'll talk about how you know the appendix, uh, you know, are the remnants of a digestive system that used to exist, uh, and, and uh, it's changed and evolved, and now we have. You know, this new one and that that is just left over from the previous. Well, you know, just discuss, you know, that the the eyeball is part of the brain and, and it it is literally I mean, you're looking at my brain when you look at my eye. When I look at your eye, I'm looking at your brain that 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 develops at the same time. It is it is one unit. Uh, you know, everything you're looking at right now is upside down. The lens is projecting, and your brain is flipping it right side up. You know, I just got these glasses a couple of weeks ago, and they're progressive lenses. And, you know, at first, that whole kind of, like, motion sick feeling, because, you know, strong magnification at the bottom, much lighter magnification at the top, and the movement, you know, uh, you know, you raise the lens up like that, and all those boards in the back wall kind of move. Well, now I'm I'm very used to that being there all the time, and, and I don't even notice. You know, I just say to Lori uh, that you know now I wear these, 
and uh, I'm getting to the point where most of the time I don't even remember that I have them on. You know, because my eyeball is part of my brain, and so what's coming through the lens is being constantly calculated by the brain as one unit. So, so there's no way that a freckle on the forehead of some worm is going to, you know, eventually develop into an eyeball. You know, the appendix, they, you know, recently uh, discovering that that's a storehouse that your body constantly pulls sample out of your intestines and stores. Oh, new level of bacteria, new types, pulse them, get rid of things it doesn't need. It's constantly filing away and getting rid of file because, uh, well, you know, antibiotics wipe out the digestive tract, but the thing that most commonly does it naturally is fever. You know, we get very sick and that entire population of bacteria in your bowels or most of it gets wiped out. Your body holds in the appendix what it needs and when you're healthy, it releases that out and rebuilds the flora of bacteria in your bowel in order to maintain health. You know, talk to people who've been in accidents and lost their tailbone and you'll discover that that being broken off or damaged or, you know, surgically removed, uh, there's a whole bunch of things about sitting and standing and walking that are now, it's a, an essential part of our body's function. It's, it isn't a useless thing. It's not something completely unseen, <laughs> you know, and yet take it away and, and the body's function is dramatically changed. So it is within the body of Christ here. You know, when Paul says here, uh, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. We are connected. You know, this morning, you know, we're talking about how we're all one body and, and the common union of us bound together in Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to drive across is that one is not more important than the other, not more significant than the other. Remember that he's coming at this from the position of, the Judaizers have come in and renounced Paul, and effectively they're saying, the guy's useless. Well, we get rid of him. We don't need him. Their whole faith has been established by Paul. You know, they, they've come into the body through his teaching. So all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For one, For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. <clears throat> For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Think about how applicable this message is right now to our culture. That's dividing itself and fighting over the smallest uh, little things. You know, and I'm all for cultural sensitivity to the degree it's actually needed. You know, if there is an injustice that's been done, then we certainly need to correct our culture, our leadership, our law enforcement, all of those things. You know, we can't let our police officers become murderers wearing a badge, right? I mean, we, of course, of course, you know, black lives matter. Of course, black lives matter. That's, that's not, I mean, the movement and organization is horrible. But as far as the people in our culture, 
obviously every single nationality is as important to the other. Why? Because we're all one. It's the human race. This, this message right here is significant for Christianity to embrace and to take out into the world. This is the answer to our issues. There aren't different races. There's only one race. It's the human race. God declares that. You know, scientists have studied the genetic form, and oh, they're just so amazed that everything bottlenecks down to four individuals or eight sets of chromosomes. Huh, almost like that's what the scripture says, that eight people went on board the ark. You know, and they can track it back beyond those eight and discover that it came from two. You know, one set of DNA. Oh, like Adam and Eve. Almost like we've read that somewhere you know, in the scripture. The word of God is telling us the answers that we need to hear. For if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? And now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. And if there were all one member, there would where would the body be? I mean, if it was all an ear, all a hand, you wouldn't have a body. You wouldn't have any function. There needs to be diversity. There's an arrogance that happens inside Christianity quite often where individuals get thinking, I'm the only one here that's seeing this right. I'm the only one who knows how to do this right. And everybody should do it my way. And, and so then what they do is they try to separate everybody away from anybody that thinks differently than themselves and say, we're all going to think this way. We're all going to behave this way. What you end up doing in that situation is creating an, an environment of hostility where anyone that doesn't conform ends up feeling abused. You know, my good friend, John Mills, is probably one of the most gentle, kind-hearted, soft-spoken. He's a godly man, very, very dialed in, has very clear insight and vision. We, we had to go deal with a circumstance together recently and sit down and give some counsel to an individual that needed our help. I was very direct and very straightforward and very blunt. And... At moments in that conversation, it didn't make the conversation go well. And John being there, being kind and gentle and diplomatic, smoothed over those moments and helped us come to conclusions. But there were moments where the wool was being pulled over his eyes. And I needed to be direct and confrontational and get to the point. Our differences worked complementary with one another and accomplished a very good outcome in the end. Both of us had the desire to help 
the brother that we were meeting with. It, it was good that it wasn't just John Mills there. And it was good that it wasn't just Will Cass there. That we served together to help our brother, who has an entirely different frame of mind, come to where he needed to be. The body of Christ needs to have needs to have this kind of diversity, and, and you, you watch in the you know microcosm of the church very often, as I described moments ago. There, are, you know, those people as we'll just follow those examples. You know, those that are blunt and direct, who think everybody should be blunt and direct. You know, you you, you have those that are soft and gentle who think everybody should be soft and gentle. It's an imbalance when you just have one. The, the, the differences need to be embraced. Yeah. Unity, but not uniformity. We've talked about that endlessly. So, many members. If the foot should say, you know, where's the, you know, I'm not part of this, I'm not hand, you know, ear, eye. We all have our place in function. But now, verse 20, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much, uh, no, much rather those members of the body, which seem to be weaker or maybe even lesser, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have great have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism, no division but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So, you know, I've already given illustration. Uh, I'll, I'll put another one on there. You know, small things, unseen, right? You know, my face is you know, the presentable part all of the time, you know, good, bad, ugly, you get to see it. And that's, that's how the presentation, the voice comes out, the look, the expression. This is one of the most presented portions of any person. Well, there's a very small member in my body that doesn't always function right. Very critical, not seen by others. And when it fails me, it becomes very apparent to me first and then even others. It's my tear ducts. Now, people will often say, your tear duct, okay? Your tear duct is actually here. And the fluid that comes out of your tear duct travels across the eyeball, cleaning it. And this vacuum in the corner of your eye draws the fluid in. That's why all of that junk collects in the corner and you're able to take it off. Because your eye is being cleansed by your tear duct. My tear ducts don't produce the tears they should all the time. Hydration has a lot to do with that. But age more than anything. And man, when my eyes get dry. 
you know, then it's just a constant fight for me. And then it starts becoming apparent to you because I'm constantly at my eye. While the presentable portion of myself that you're constantly seeing, experiencing, one small thing is now affecting the whole. And wow, if I go through two or three days of that, like the agitation that grows in my person. You know, by day three, when I wake up and it's like sandpaper, you know, it's just like, it's funny how a small thing, you know, we've all done that, stub the toe, bang the finger, and now the pain, my wife is currently suffering with this tendon in her foot, and the calf is all punched up, and just some small thing. It could be a completely unseen thing internally that's now affecting the rest of your person. So important to the whole function of the body. It isn't even you know, within the church that everybody needs to be the pastor. There's literally very small things that need to happen in order for all of us to function together that the message of the word would come off the pulpit and land in the ears properly. You know, if we're not willing to, if we're not going to work together, and be a functional body, then the schism, the division is going to occur. You know, why don't they ever ask me? Why can't I? I want this. I want I, I, I. You know, why, why am I not the hand? Why can't I be the eyeball? Why don't I get to be? Uh, how about we function in the role Christ has given us, be as effective as we possibly can there, even if we're not seen? You know, you guys have never seen my tear duct, ever. You know, I've never seen my tear duct, but I have suffered the effects of its lack of function many, many times. And, you know, now you'll notice it that I've mentioned it. You know, the number of times I take my glasses off and I have to put my glasses back on and just, you know, that thing agitating me. Now it's affecting you. So we are fit together. We all have roles within the body of Christ. You know, I, I always recommend uh, the book written by Chuck Smith's uh, assistant pastor, E.L. Romaine. The book was called uh, Second. And uh, he wrote the whole book in capital letters because he meant it that way. He was a retired Marine Corps instructor, and the, the core premise of the book is God called and ordained me to serve that man. I'm, I'm here to make sure that guy is successful. So much behind the scenes, so working that Chuck had occasions uh, where people came to the church and he had spoken of Romaine so many times and what Romaine is doing and the help Romaine had given him and the way that Romaine was working and the people that Romaine was counseling that they would arrive as visitors to Costa Mesa and want to meet Chuck's wife, Romaine. And it was the burly old guy who was there making sure that Chuck's ministry was successful wasn't there to be heard wasn't there to be seen was there to make sure that things went through and we all fit and work together now you are the body of christ and members individually and god has appointed these in the church now before we 
read through these. We've talked about this a couple of different times. When he does this order and says first, second, third, this is not of significance or even order. He, it's very distinct in the Greek language that he's not telling us now most significantly or even first in the order. It's just like, you know, one, uh, you know, and, you know, two and also three. And so the list is just sort of organized. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing. Helps, right? No, nobody, nobody signs up for that, you know? Nursery duty. Yeah, the long time Calvary Chapel Bangor had the sign hanging in the nursery that quoting Thessalonians that said, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You know, it's the service to take care of those little guys, change diapers, you know, clean out the, the diaper pail at the end of church to make sure the next crew has what's available, the gift of helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, languages specifically, and we'll talk about that more as we move forward in First Corinthians. And now, very significant because like rhetorical questions in the English language, the language structure tells you automatically what the answer is here. When he says, are all apostles? The answer is obviously no. Okay, uh, We understand from the language construct that the answer here is no. And so it is in the original language, which is significant because there are certain portions of Christianity that teach everyone must speak in tongues. Everyone must have certain spiritual gifts. And here Paul is telling us that's not the case. That not everybody has the same spiritual gifts. Right? You might only have the gift of helps and have no other gifts. You might only have the gift of administrations but have no other gifts listed here. You might only be an apostle but not have any prophetic or even teaching skills or administration skills. So, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no, 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 no. Each of us has our own spiritual gifts. And uh, I think if you take the time to study what's specifically being described there, right? Apostles, those that are sent out by the Lord to carry his gospel message. Sometimes, sometimes evangelism fits into that picture, but those that are sent out. So there are those that have that gift are all prophets. Again, those who foretell or forthtell. They speak forth on behalf of God. A lot of people do that who know the word so well and see its application in a specific circumstance and they speak forth on behalf of God. Others have divine wisdom given to them and they can speak prophetically of things to come. If you do that, it's going to turn out bad. Or you should do this because it would turn out good for you. 
They can they can see and recognize and foretell, maybe even with greater detail than that. Are all teachers? Uh, I've had the painful experience of sitting down and listening to someone and thinking, wow, how did they ever end up in the pulpit? Like, they have no gift of teaching. I don't know what we were supposed to understand. I don't know why we started where we did or ended up where we did. I didn't have any challenge put before me. I wasn't taught anything. You know, we moved through a passage and it will probably would have been more useful if I had just listened to a recording of that section of scripture. Because this person doesn't, I mean, not often, but I've ended up in a couple places where you almost want to go up and say, please go discover what your gift is. Because you haven't fallen upon it. Clearly you have a heart to serve the Lord, and that's commendable. That's awesome. But you don't have the gift of teaching. Some are, are like that. Are all teachers workers of miracles? Clearly not. You know, those that would pray and lay their hands upon see miracles done. You know, I, I have been in the presence of those who, who walked in and I mean Literally, death was written upon the diagnosis. And they walked into the situation and said, No, the Lord has revealed that this illness is not unto death. Lay their hands upon and pray and walked out with confidence to the degree that some of the people left in the room were like, That was kind of arrogant. Until complete restoration of that little girl. Complete healing. No death sentence. You know, miracles, things that occur. Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Again, no. So for certain denominations of Christianity to say, we're going to baptize you in a specific way. And when we do, you're going to speak in tongues. And that will be the knowledge of your salvation. And they literally then write out a certificate of baptism in the Holy Spirit and give it to them. On this day, you're baptized in the Spirit as the significance of you being born again. Uh, you know that's a, that piece of paper is as meaningless as when someone takes an infant forward at the Roman Catholic institution. They, you know, christen them and spring, and they say, "There, that is that child's salvation." That child may grow up and be a drug lord who, you know, does horrible things. Uh, no submission to Christ. Uh, the, the life has to be dedicated to the Lord. Do all speak in tongues? No, not everyone does. Not everyone has to. Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And the the chapter division is really quite strange at this point. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. My grandson, Raya, was the classic wooden spoon, metal pot kid who would dig in the cupboard and then bang, 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 and just loud and long, you know. And it, it is actually kind of cute. And you can tell it was just thrilling his heart to make that noise. He, he was just loving the experience, you know, and so was I for the first three bangs, you know, and after that, my enjoyment of it was going downhill steadily with each stroke. 
Now, my grandson Jacob, well, he has a little drum kit, and his father's a drummer, and my daughter, uh, his mother plays drums, and that kid actually finds real rhythm. You know, he's he's doing like four-stroke rolls up through the drum kit and ending on the cymbal. You know, uh, that's, that's a thing that he, he's actually got the meter and the measure of time, and he's landing on the cymbal on one. You're like, hey, there's some skill there, you know. It's annoying right now, but there's some skill there that's going to develop along the way. And I think for a lot of people within Christianity, not with just speaking in tongues, right, but with whatever their gift is, they just want to bang on that one issue, and it becomes an annoyance. You know, that's your gift. Great. I don't mean to do this the wrong way, but I've been in churches many times where clearly everyone in the room is a believer. And the preacher is preaching as though he's teaching to a room full of unsaved people. And he's finishing with, uh, anybody need to get right with the Lord and come down front and let's pray. And okay, you know, the Lord laid it on your heart. There's some souls here that need to get right. And then you're there next service and same method. And same message and altar call. And then the next week and every single sermon is a call to repentance and a call to salvation. That, that literally will leave your flock feeling like they're unsaved. And it will literally leave the flock discouraged with their walk and their maturity. Now, now is the pastor wrong? I want to be very clear about that. I don't think he is. I think his gift is evangelism, not teaching. He's, he's in the pulpit preaching to those that have been saved. They need a teacher that is going to encourage them and cause them to grow and mature and develop as a believer. The guy that's always giving a call to repentance needs to consider what is your calling? Where is the Lord leading you? Where could the Lord use you? Look for an opportunity. I mean, maybe you're the next Billy Graham and you've landed in a congregation of 25 people and you're just beating the sheep up every week. They're, they're walking away discouraged, feeling like that pastor's right. I need to get right with the Lord. I mean, we can say that every week, can't we, right? We need to get right with the Lord. But if we've already surrendered our life to Christ, that message is more useful in another environment where believers need to be called to repentance. So earnestly desire the best gifts, yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Love in each one of these gifts, right, is going to behave differently. If the apostle has been called by the Lord to go out, plant churches, right? I, I think of Don McClure, you know, in Calvary Chapel. Uh, Don and Jean have, I forget, last uh, he spoke, I think he said he had started, or he didn't start all of them. He's pastored at like 25 churches, uh, started many of them from the ground up. Uh, the other ones he rescued, you know, pastor passed away and he went in and 
you know, served and strengthened the body and built them up until he was able to take somebody else and put them in the position and step away. Like an apostle being sent out and sent out and sent out and sent out to build up. That's a selfless attitude, right? Now he's talking about how his sons are like, Dad, you need to find a good church and stay there where, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing what Don laid on us, but like where they can give you a retirement plan and maybe some health insurance and, you know, actually, you know, take care of you and mom. And, you know, Don's attitude is no. Christ is my insurance policy and my retirement plan. And this is what he sent me out to do. And I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for him and his willingness to just go and go and go and preach and minister and share and build and do what the Lord has caused it. Love, right? Selfishness. Selfishness would cause him to settle down in one place and say, I got to think about myself here. I got to take, my, take care of myself here. Even if it's a small church, I got to stay here and I got to build myself. And instead, he, he takes the role and says, I'm going to go. I'm gonna, the prophet, right, might, might be called by the Lord to go and confront and correct and even rebuke and warn and say the things that need. Ah, but people aren't going to like him. So if he were selfish, he probably would change his message. And, and curb his behavior and his attitude and become something. Selflessness causes him to walk into the discussion and say, you know what, this might cause me this friendship, but I need to say this right now to this person or to this congregation in this setting. The selflessness of love compels them. So it is with helps and administration and speaking in tongues. You know, tongues that is selfish, as Paul puts it right here, you know, clanging symbol. The person that just always has to speak in tongues in the meeting. You know, I've been in the Pentecostal services where, you know, you can pretty much watch the crescendo happen every service. You know, the music starts out like this, and it gets a little more excited. And then, you know, the band does that, and then the pastor does this, and then that person right over there, you can almost set your watch by it, is going to start speaking in tongues. The gifts being utilized for a selfish thing rather than a service, if we'll back away from all that the church has developed, and actually seek the Lord on, okay, what is it that he wants me doing? How do, how do I come into whatever setting the Lord has us, and how do I serve this body the way that I should? So that they're being built up with, with my skills. I'm making this a better situation with what the Lord has equipped me with. When we'll do that, then we start to do what Paul has described in these previous chapters of using our gifts to edify and build up the whole body rather than ourselves. Uh, do need to point out, you know, that he said, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, so we get from that the implication that there are languages that angels speak. And so, you know, when people speak in tongues and someone says, well, that's not even any known language on earth. Well, maybe it's not. 
Maybe it is literally a language that is not earthly. So we can't dismiss certain things that occur just because we don't have an understanding of it. Now, carrying on into verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, this term love, uh, the King James uh, renders charity. And, and that's actually a better uh, word to use, in, especially in our language, but the term charity has been lost for the most part. You know, you know, a benevolent charity, you know, something that you give to expecting nothing in return. That, that's the idea. It is the selfishness or the selflessness of agape. Love in our culture, that's been completely polluted. It needs to be that selflessness of giving to others is, is what is intended and meant by this. So, you know, remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. There are lots of reasons why people do what they do inside the body of Christ. And uh, I have discovered in myself, which has let me see in others, that often it's much later I realize that my motivation was impure. I go into a situation and, uh, you know, I go through the motions and, give the service or do the thing, and later, much later, years later, I discover, wow, you know, I was really looking for some attention there or some other strange fleshly motivation. It takes some effort to uh, make sure that what's compelling us into work and service in the body of Christ is the thought for someone else. That if we could do it without being recognized at all, if we could do it without receiving any credit for it at all, if we could sneak around and do for others and no one would ever know, that's really what the Lord is looking for, is that there isn't some earthly, fleshly, sinful, uh, you know, selfish motivation behind whatever we're doing. Now, it's uh, for me... You know, it's it's terrible when I receive compliments. I'll, you know, share a message and people come up, that was a great message. Because there's a sinful thing inside me. I know you guys don't struggle with this, but that automatically wants to go, well, of course it was. You know, I prepared it. You know, I shared it. Of course it was a good sermon. It's, it's a terrible thing uh, that our flesh is so sinful that way that we have to constantly keep these things in check. We rob ourselves. Uh, prophets mean nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Let's make sure those two are coupled together, right? Because we sometimes get the attitude like, I have put up with this for so long. That is a measure of how godly I am. Uh, really? Now that you've lost your temper? <laughs> now that I've lost my temper? Love suffers for a long time and continues to be kind. Right? 
love doesn't serve and serve and serve and then finally start smacking people. You know, if we come to that place, then the question is, was it ever love? Because love is going to suffer for a long time and continue to be kind. Going to continue to forgive and be gracious. Love does not envy. Right? Love, love isn't looking around going, why can't I get some of that? Why isn't that? Why Everybody always pays attention. Why, where's my recognition? You know, there's a whining, sniveling kid inside us sometimes that needs to be corrected. That envies what other people have, whatever other people do. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Now I'll jump right back to the prophecy and the speaking in tongues that often goes on inside certain circles. Because so very often, all that's going on is, look at me, uh, I'm awesome, and just prophesied or just spoke in tongues. Did everybody just notice? You know, the, the motivation is attention, that, that people would be looking on and, and somehow wowed by that. Something that I've noticed about, you know, not the gift of discernment, as we talked about, that's, you know, discerning of spirits, but just I've discerned that people that behave that way with those two gifts, which I believe those gifts are real for today but the ones who use it in this way you know puffed up you know parading itself they do it in such a safe manner that they can't ever be verified they you know prophesy but they do it in such a generic way that you you know you can't years ago i remember a pastor in bangor published on the cover of their bulletin uh, his prophecy that said, uh, thus saith the Lord, if this church will double her tithe in two years, she will have her new building. And that was on their bulletin cover for almost two years. And then they took it off because they didn't have their new building. And they just sort of brushed that into the waste bin and move along. When confronted about it, you know, he hung it all up on if. Thus saith the Lord, if this church will double her tithe. See, now put it on the church, right? Prophecy foretelling before something happens is sure and unmovable. God says, this will happen as a statement of faith. If, right? He usually says if in regard to repentance, if you've ever noticed that. If you will walk with me, I will bless you. If you don't, then these curses are going to come upon you. You know, saying you have choice here. When the Lord says, hey, tell the people this is going to happen. Then when he says it, it takes place parading themselves so that they can be puffed up. I, I don't doubt the gift of prophecy at all. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it in work. I've seen it in my own life. When people have called me up out of the blue and said, hey, the Lord just revealed to me something 
that you've been praying about that nobody else knows about, and God's going to fulfill it. That you know, that's powerful. When somebody hears from the Lord, that there's no parading, you know. And and could you do me a favor and you know publish it in the bulletin next week so that everybody knows I said that? No, no parading at all. They didn't. You know, they just called me up between me and them and let me know something. They spoke on behalf of the Lord into my life. Uh, quietly, anonymously, serving this whole body with a gift. Uh, continuing, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Oh, oh that's kind of interesting. Thinks no evil. That's challenging. That's challenging. My, my pastor was the one who taught me that uh, most graciously. I had fallen into sin. I went to him and I confessed my sin because I needed to get right with the Lord. And part of getting right with the Lord was getting right with my pastor. I confessed my sin to him and he said, wow, you know, I didn't know anything about that. And I said, yeah, you did. And uh, this occasion happened and, you know. I behaved in this way. And he said, can't remember that. I said, yeah, we were in such and such a place and I was behaving badly and it went down like this. And he said, can't remember that. And I said, no, no, you remember. I was being terrible. It was awful. And I just said, I just, I need to get right. I need to be right with you. I need to be right with the Lord. And he reached over and put his hands on me and looked me in the face and said, I can't remember that. And I suddenly understood what he was saying was, you're not going to make me. Whether it's in his mind or not, thinks no evil. Thinks no evil. And I, and I suddenly realized how sinful I am in a lot of cases where I've been wronged. And so I get my invisible black book out and I write your error down. <laughs> and I keep it. Snap. You know, Someplace close. So when I see you doing it again, I go, of course. Because look, right here in my mind, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Thinks no evil. Doesn't have that suspicious attitude. Is willing to forgive. Is constantly, well, you know, if we're like our Heavenly Father, doesn't he separate his sin as far as the east, our sin, from as far as the east is from the west, you know, the never meet? Do we do that for one another? I just separate your sin as far as the east is. Well, you separate my sin as far as the east is from the west. We don't hold these things. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Oh, you know, darn it. That actually takes a whole bunch of movie watching right off the list. Because, oh, I would never, you know, do that. That's terrible. But I'll sit here and cheer as... You know, that actor does that. Rejoices in the iniquity. You know, I would never, you know, steal all that money. But boy, that was an interesting show where they stole all that money. They were so clever. Rejoicing in iniquity. You know, our culture, right, right now, our culture that's been raised on that whole attitude of maybe they never, but you know, Give them an opportunity. Will they riot? Will they raid? Will they loot? 
right? They've been raised in a culture that has celebrated this in entertainment for a long time. People go, oh, well, does art imitate life or does light imi life imitate art? The answer, yes. <laughs> yes, it does. It needs to be that we as believers would not rejoice, but rejoice in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Now, he's going to clarify later that we're not naive, right? As somebody stabbing you in the back and telling you that they're not, we don't go, okay. <laughs> As they're stealing from you, you don't go, well, let me cooperate with this theft and just hand it over. We are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But you can see within this that he's encouraging us that, you know, you don't think evil, as we said, rejoice in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, you guys, love is capable. So, you know, apply believes all things more to, you know, I've wronged you a hundred times. And you've realized it, and I've realized it, and I say, man, that stinks. Will you forgive me? I'm going to do better. I'm going to try. And you go, no, I don't believe you. <laughs> does the Lord believe you and give you another chance? Yes, he does. Are we, are we willing to be the people that say, okay, as much as the Lord has given me a pass and encouraged me and strengthened me and not held it over my head, I can do that for you. I, I can be gracious, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the only way we're going to get along with one another, right? I've brought my pastor up a couple times uh, tonight, but he, he was the first one that I ever heard say, to live with another human being in marriage is mental abuse. Because <laughs> we're all sinners, you know, our culture is making too much of that whole thing of, oh, mental abuse, verbal abuse. Look, if you've been married to another sinner, you've suffered some of that somewhere along the way. I mean, there are legitimate reasons to examine, you know, the degrees thereof. But if we love, then bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, we as the body of Christ. And that's more what Paul is pointing at, isn't it? Right? Knit together, working together, one body. We need to be gracious and forgive one another. I, I'm going to just, I know we're at time, but verse, uh, where am I? Uh, love never fails, verse 8. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Now, that opens up into this next section, which is really big. But I, I wanted to touch on that and get us to think about that through this week. Because a lot of people use this to say uh, we shouldn't be speaking in tongues and there should be no prophecy in the church because they've ceased here. Prophecy will cease or fail and you know tongues, they will cease. Okay, well, here, here's what I want you to focus on. Read this over and over. Read the commentaries this week, and we'll, we'll pick up with verse 8 next week. The qualifying thing I want you to notice is 
that when prophecy fails and when tongues uh, cease or you know, you know are done away with, then we will know completely and not in part. We can openly admit that right now we only know of the Lord in part. We only know of the Lord in fraction. You know, as Paul is going to say, you know, uh, that it's like looking through a smoked mirror. You know, seeing things dimly. Uh, you know, the mirrors they used were hammered metal. Polished copper that had been hammered flat. And so, you know, how you actually got an accurate picture of yourself was tilting it around and letting your brain calculate all the little pieces that it was. You didn't just look at it like that because that was like, you know, the circus mirror. Make you look hideous as you look at it. You, you had to take the word of God and find all of the different angles to understand something. You know, dimly we see now, then face to face. So the clarity is not here yet, which is the indication that the prophecy and the speaking in tongues have a role within the church. And until we see clearly, until it's no longer backwards, we're going to have to trust that the Lord still has uses and purposes for these things. So we'll delve in that a little bit more uh, next week. Right now, why don't we pray and we'll uh, end right there. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that you would help us to love it, to trust it, to rely upon it, that we would see your work being done in our lives. Father, the, the world is stark, raving mad all around us on every level. Help us to be foundational for people, that as we rest upon you as our rock, people would be able to cling to us for your wisdom for your grounding, for your surety, the work in our lives spreading out to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.